So, Max Munson. Yes. Welcome. Thank you. Are you switching off your phone? I want to make sure that it's off. Yeah. Guys, those of you listening, this is also on YouTube with video. So if you want to see Max panicking and switching off his ringing, then At switch the last over minute. to Yeah, last minute. Switch over to YouTube because you can see this with audio and video there. And uh, so Max Charles Munson. That's right. Uh, who names their kid Max? Yeah, you know, it was... It's not uh, Maximilian or Maxime or... It's kind of annoying. I was yeah. supposed to be Maximilian. You know, okay. and Maximilian means greatness. Yes. So I was hoping for a Maximilian. And then uh, I think I had this great name. It was going to be Maximilian Charles Jackson Munson. My parents agreed to this, and they went to sign the birth certificate. And then they got cold feet. It just seemed too long. And so they, sh- they removed the Jackson... And then they shortened the Maximilian just to Max. Yeah. Yeah. And to this day, I have to deal with that. Okay. Short of greatness. But is that is that something, like, are these names somehow from the family? Or, or you know what I mean? Or how, You don't have that in the U.S. so much, you, that you name. Yeah, a little bit. The Jackson is also from my, my mother's side of the family. And uh, Charles was the name of her stepfather. Uh-huh. So, and then the Max was brand new. Okay. Because yeah, I always liked this when I was growing up. These American names like you know Max Tucker and these like there's something in those names, you know. Yeah, yeah Tucker now has connotations. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Yeah, because of the guy at Tucker Carlson Fox News. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. That he he's kind of a character that can divide America. Yeah. Yeah. He's an interesting guy, though. Yeah. Um. So Max, you. <clears throat> You're an American living in Prague. You've been here since, what, 92? Yeah, I moved here in 92. And I told you, we we actually met in your, you own a restaurant called Max Steakhouse. Right. And we met there kind of randomly. I always had you on my list somehow. I knew about you because you're kind of a legendary figure in the kind of early, early stages. Early days. Yeah, early days Mm. of of expats coming to Prague. Mm. And... uh, so I always wanted to talk to you and just hear but how it was and blah, blah, blah. But uh, And then... Then I walked by and I saw you in the yeah, restaurant. Yeah. And I came, midlife crisis warrior. Yeah, that's me on I'm like, Instagram. hey, Max, how are you? Yeah. So we started talking. Then, yeah. another coincidence, that I signed up for a, for a Wim Hof, yeah. like a breathing workshop, a cold water breathing workshop. Yep, exactly. And it turns out that you were one of the instructors. Yes. So I thought, okay, yeah, We're teaming I, up yeah, for this one. I really need to get get Max on my podcast. So here we are. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. If we st- start, Let's start a little bit with the, the Wim Hof because I'm really curious what I actually signed up for. So what what, okay. what got you into that? And what is, well, actually, what is Wim Hof all about? Because he's this strange-looking guy that yeah. sits in the snow in a Buddha pose. Hey, exactly. And I would say that what you just described is how most people view him. You know, mm. this guy, they see on, come across their Instagram feed or they see him on YouTube, some guy sitting in the ice or floating next to glaciers or yeah. uh, maybe in a giant bucket of ice on Times Square. <laughs> and uh, so people have this idea the Wim Hof method is to sit in ice. And it's, I mean, and, and there is some ice involved. You know, I'm not going to lie. Mm. But there's a lot more to it. So okay. the Wim Hof method is something that incorporates three things that I think have been going on in the world for thousands of years, but Wim, uh, Wim Hof, who was a guy, a Dutch guy, uh, over about the last 40 years, put these three things together to create a method to help people to become happier, healthier, and stronger. 
Oh, and those three things are, so there's some cold exposure, as we have seen. There's some breath work. And I have to tell you, the first time I heard about the breath work a few years ago, I didn't understand it. I thought we can all breathe. You know, what's the, what's what's the, the issue? Trick, yeah. yeah. So, so that is a, a learning curve in and of itself. Mm. And then the third part is mindset. And maybe people kind of blur over the mindset part, but that could be the most powerful of the three pillars. So the workshop that you will be coming to in a, in a few weeks, mm. we will go through all three of these pillars. We'll explore each one deeply. We'll train you in the breath work. We'll talk about mindset, how to apply the mindset before cold exposure or before a strenuous sporting event like a marathon or even during a marathon or in your daily life before you have a difficult conversation with someone or when trying to achieve certain goals in your life. And uh, so we'll go over all that stuff. It takes about four or five hours. There's normally a great community of people there. Mm. And, uh, and then you leave <clears throat> pretty, pretty euphoric. This breath work and the cold exposure, they, they can transform you. But do they trigger something that helps you with the mind? Do you know what I mean? Like, is, is, it, is it a ritual in a way that, that because you, I don't know, can, or let's say, you can go through the cold by breathing in the right way, and by breathing in the right way and getting through the cold, you get the right mindset. Do, do, do you know, are these sure. kind of gateways into each other somehow? Or, or uh, Yeah, for sure, because we use the, so the mindset can help you get through, like I said, any of these other challenges mm. in your life. And the cold is what we use as the metaphor for a very, very difficult challenge. Mm -hmm. And so when you do that every day, when you start your day with setting your mindset and going into a difficult situation and handling it on your own terms in the way that you want, not in some stressed out position, but completely with all of your faculties under your own control. And when you do that every day, when you learn the method and practice that particular part every day, then when life throws at you these mm. other difficult situations mm. that you do not expect, your body does not differentiate between the different types of stress. So if you're already used to handling you know, intense stress on your own terms, you can then apply that to these other situations. So you're basically kind of building endurance in a way, like to, to endure stressful situations. Stress endurance. Very good mm. description. Yeah. It's interesting because... Like I feel like I was telling you before we started recording, you know, I'm I'm I, I do occasionally I do run these marathons and 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 when I started running I, I, I was never like a runner. My first run was like four hundred meters and it mm. took me three wow. days to recover, you know, like wow. and I was like, Okay. Yeah. This and when is, was that? I don't know, like ninety ninety six, seven okay. or something All like right. that. And and I, I was just I wasn't that healthy person, you know, like I I was like yeah, why should I run? I, yeah. I haven't stolen anything, you know. Mm. Like I, I, yeah. I just didn't see a purpose, you know. Yeah. And uh, and then, but then I felt what what happened is that over time you kind of built that like base level of capacity or 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 ability somehow. So right now I could go, I could run, not run for five years, but I could still go out and run five kilometers without any problem. No kidding. Because you kind of built in that, yeah. like, and and what you were saying about if if I go in the morning and I endure the cold mm. in a cold plunge or something like that, sure, or cold shower, yeah, then kind of whatever is thrown at me during the day is not gonna stick as much as if I couldn't. 
Exactly. And I feel the same with running, you know, because I feel that I've built both like a mindset and, and, and a physical ability to do those things so that when somebody tells me, yeah, let's go and climb this mountain or something, I'm not going to think, oh, that's, that's going to be hard. I think, well, I've done marathons. Right. Why shouldn't I, you know? Right. Yeah, I can handle that. Yeah. Is this somehow, you, you know what I mean? Am I? Very similar. Um, so I don't need to workshop. <laughs> no, I think it's a good point. Like you're already many steps in that direction uh, in, in a particular way already. You know, so definitely it is different to come to a workshop with this kind of prep that you have done mm. than if you have come to it from, for Nowhere. example, yeah, your, yeah. your position in 1996. Yeah. And then I'm from Iceland, so I'm used to the cold. Exactly. You were raised yeah. next to glaciers. So I, I might, when is yeah. Wim retiring? Yeah, good point. We need a Wim replacement unit. Yeah. yeah we're going to call you. But you said he started 40 years ago. Yeah, people kind of thought he was this crazy hippie there uh -huh. in, uh, in the Netherlands. And they would see him um, going into these lakes, kind of chopping holes in the lakes and getting into the, into the frozen, you know, this frozen water. And people kind of made fun of him and they thought he was a weirdo. And uh, I, I think they gave him a lot of flack. Mm. And it wasn't until he started to do these incredible things. You know, he set all these world records. Mm. I think he did it so that people would, A, take him more seriously and then take his method more seriously. Because he knew from the beginning that this is something that can really help be like an antidote to this modern lifestyle that we've mm. got. Yeah, and he, I remember the first, I think I... I it's probably like 20 years or something since I knew about him. Yeah. And then it was very much kind of a fringe thing, you know, yeah. like an alternative somehow and uh, and hippie thingy. And, and then it somehow broke into the mainstream, like um, in, I don't know, last five Five years, ten years, maybe. Yeah. So when people, when he, when he would set these world records, like running a marathon in a desert, you know, with oh. no water, or you know, the Arctic Circle oh. in his shorts and yeah. no shoes, and yeah. you know, these crazy things that are like none of us can conceive of doing anything mm. like that. That started to raise the awareness that there is this Iceman guy who's kind of crazy and does these weird things, and no one knew how he did it. Mm. And he kept telling people time and time again how he does it. Mm -hmm. But of course, it's so far from what we can imagine. Yeah, yeah. No one took that seriously. And then he realized that the Guinness records are not going to cut it. He's going to mm. need something more. He's going to need science to support what he's doing. Mm. And so he would, you know, these doctors would approach him and he would uh, agree with certain doctors for one study or another. And then finally, this study in 2011, in the Radbound University Hospital, in the Netherlands, they, came, they analyzed him and they said, all right, so if you can do these things, you can control your autonomic nervous system and your immune system. If you think you can influence those systems, that goes against everything we know in the world of science. Mm -hmm. So we don't think you can do it, but we have a test. And if you can pass this test, you'll be the only one who's ever done it. And it will show that everything you say or much of what you say is true. Mm -hmm. and I don't know if you know about this study, but they injected him. Mm. And first, before this, the hundreds of other patients have been injected with a dead endotoxin called E. coli. And they would all respond as if it was a live endotoxin. And all their bodies would you know, become inflamed, internally yeah, yeah, inflamed. Uh, uh, immune reaction. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Intense immune uh, reaction. Uh -huh. um, uh, shivers, fevers, uh, vomiting. You know, also, like you see someone who has been injected with this, and within 30 minutes, they look like the sickest person uh -huh. you've ever seen. And this happened with hundreds of patients without exception. 
And they said to Wim, how about we inject you and you see if you can control your response, which is crazy, Mm -hmm. right? So sure enough, they inject him. Before he goes in to be injected, he does the cold and he does his breath work. He does his routine, okay. Before he even gets there. Uh They lay him in the bed. They connect him to all these sensors. You can find this on YouTube. So they got, you know, they're they're checking the inflammatory markers. They're checking his heartbeat, blood pressure, all this stuff. And they inject him with endotoxin and he says, I will fight it. And he continues to do the breath work for two and a half hours and gets no symptoms. No. And so the doctors are shocked. Like you can see their interviews after this. They're like, well, this goes against everything we've ever thought was true. This changes science. And so Wim thought he had the big win, right? Mm. And it turns out he didn't. Because then all the rest of the, the medical world, you know, the scientific community said, all right, yeah, that's, you did it. But only you can do it. Mm-hmm. You're the anomaly. Mm-hmm. And he said, that's, like, that's not the point. The point is we can all do it. Mm-hmm. They said, okay, well, if we can all do it, then train somebody else to do it. And he says, okay, give me some people, and I'll train them to do the same thing. And they said, okay, we can do that. How about we'll, we'll create a study group. I think it was like 24 people, 12 and 12, 12 who did not train with WIM, 12 who did. And they said, we'll give you this study group. How long do you need? A year you know, to work on these guys? And he said, no, give me, give me two weeks. <laughs> yeah. So he takes these guys for two, not even two weeks. Like he takes them for, they give him the guys for two weeks. He trains them for five or six days, sends them home for the remaining days to continue practicing oh. this breath work, the same stuff we're going to go over in the wor- workshop, the breath work, the cold exposure, the mindset. Works on these guys. Within days, they're outside, you know, playing soccer in the snow in their shorts and bare feet, and like just doing crazy, you know, climbing Kilimanjaro, and, mm. or no, Sneszka, I think, in Poland. Mm. And uh, just doing these crazy things. And then sure enough, those two weeks are over. They bring in the two study groups. And you can see this. I think this is also on YouTube. And you see the guys that he trained, all 12, get through with no symptoms. Well, either minor, like minimal, or no symptoms. And then they show the video footage of the other 12 who are all like rolling over in their beds and moaning and sweaty and mis- like miserable, mm-hmm. feverish. And so that was in 2014. And so from that moment, I think that was kind of the big watershed movement, movement, uh, moment where people saw this is something that can be learned. It's not just whim. It's not just an anomaly. Yeah, he's not like some freak of nature or anything exactly. like that. That's really interesting. I didn't know about this. This is super interesting. And <clears throat> but the guy must be like 60-something now. Or, or I think he's 64 now. Uh-huh. But he looks, he doesn't look his age, right? He's in amazing physical condition. Yeah. Like he's, he's so strong. And his mental toughness, I think, is beyond anyone yeah. else. You, have you met him? I mean, you've been to his, like, his seminar, I mean, I guess he trains people that then train all the people and... and uh exactly. Yeah, so right now you can sign up and go on an excursion with him or he will lead the excursion with a bunch of other uh, instructors, just like you said, you know, people like me or other mm-hmm. instructors who've been doing it longer or... Um, uh, so you can sign up. I did not do that with him. I met him at his home in the Netherlands, in Stro. I met him there and we had you know, kind of an instructor gathering there, but I did not train with him uh, in Poland, mm-hmm. or I, we have not hiked up Kilimanjaro yet, but there, there are some things that are on my agenda. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, you said it. You you are a certified instructor, right? Yourself. When did you become that? Like, is that like? I think I finished the program last January. And why? What what's, oh. what what drew you to this? Yeah. 
So I think like you, I'd seen him over on, uh, on Instagram and YouTube. And mm. I remember saying to friends at some point, you know, hey, at some point, I'd like to learn how he does that. You know, this mm. is years ago. Mm. Um, but busy with family, busy with work. You know, that's always, there's always those things that you say, oh, one day that'll happen. Mm. One day I'll try that. And, uh, and I kept putting it off. It kind of was this peripheral thing. And I would hear about him. I think he was on Timothy Ferris' podcast. Mm. I don't know if you heard that one. It was a great one with the Iceman. And, uh, and he, he represented very, very well. So I planned on doing it. And then uh, I was too busy. But then COVID came. And COVID changed everything. Mm. So I have all these, you know, COVID for me was, was dreadful. And one of the great things about it was my businesses were closed. Mm. And I swim all the time. Mm. I'm a swimmer. That's why I cope with stuff. So in one day, the government closed the pools and the businesses. Mm-hmm. And there I was at home, um, not able to run, you know, to do either thing that, mm. I, that I really loved. So it was pretty annoying. These were some dark times, you know, when so you're... The first few weeks, specifically, yeah, first few weeks, uh, yeah, it was March 2, 20. Uh, and it was, these were some heinous times. And after about a month, a couple friends of mine on the swim team who had done winter swimming before called me. They said, we've had enough. We don't care if the pools are closed. We're going into lake. Uh-huh. We're going to go to Shabarak, which is out in Prague 4, near where I live. Mm. I said, okay, uh, I'm in, but it's, it's cold, right? And this is, we're talking, uh, it's like late April. Uh, it's like right now. Uh, and I said, yeah, we don't care. It's like, all right. So we went to this lake and, and they stripped down and they started swimming across this lake, Shabarak, which is like 500 meters across. I'm like, okay, they can do it. I can do it. So I got in the water and it was amazing. Mm. And I wasn't sure what was going to happen, so I'm swimming freestyle, and I go out. They keep swimming, like, the whole way across. I swim about 50 meters out, and I think that maybe I'll freeze or I'll sink or everything will, you know, stop working. I don't know, but I feel great, but I'm not sure what's going to happen, and you don't want something to happen in the middle of the lake. <clears throat> so I turn around. After 50 meters, I go back, I get out, and I feel like a superhuman. I don't know if you know that feeling yeah, when you get yeah, out of the cold yeah, water. Yeah, you're like, man, that was yeah. just amazing. You have all yeah. these hormones surging yeah. through your... <clears throat> to your all body, the, the dopamine. The, yeah, dopamine, yeah. endorphins. And endorphins, oxytocin. So I felt incredible. And they finally came back. I'm like, man, that was amazing. I, and I did it. I'm like, yeah, we can do this. So we went back the next day and the next day. And by the end of the week, I could swim the whole kilometer mm. across and back. And I don't know what the water temperature was. I don't know, 10, 11, 12, 13, mm-hmm. something like that. So you, you get out and you feel amazing. But after a couple of minutes, I would start to shiver. And these two said, all right, well, Let's go in the car, we'll turn up the heat, and we'll have some tea. And I couldn't even drink the tea because my hands were shaking so uh-huh. much. And so I went back, I told my wife, I said, you know, this is, uh, it's, it's great, but I don't like the shivering, it's so miserable, mm. it's horrible. And she said, well, you should learn how to do it, how Wim does it, he doesn't shiver. <laughs> uh, okay. You should be more like All Wim. Right. Yeah, I guess there's no pictures of him shivering, you know, on oh. YouTube and... And it's like, all right, so honey, let's do the Wim Hof method. So she agrees. We're both going to try this thing. And, and the original reason was this kind of not so important reason, really, how uh-huh. to not shiver. And uh, to make a long story short, we didn't sign up because the pools reopened like just a few weeks later. Uh-huh. And so I ended up just going back to the pools. But then, you know, we all thought COVID was over. Remember, spring 2020. Yeah. And sure enough, COVID was not over. And there was another lockdown in September. And as soon as that lockdown happened, she and I signed up for the 10-week course. And I was about five uh, video course that you can sign up for online. Mm-hmm. And about the fourth week in, I realized, as, as Wim takes you through these video courses every day, how much more there was to this method 
than just uh-huh. handling the shivering. And I just thought it was so amazing. I said, honey, this is, this is awesome. We have, I've, I've got a, I want to teach this. And she said, yeah, that we, she loved it too. And mm-hmm. we, we didn't have enough money for us both to become instructors. So we agreed that I would become an instructor. Mm-hmm. And so we finished that 10-week course. I had to do another 10-week course. And then there's an instructor course. And then you finish the instructor course in Poland with a week of training mm-hmm. at kind of the Wim Hof Center up there in Przyjeka. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and just continue to love it ever since. There, there's many, many layers to this Wim Hof method onion. Mm-hmm. But but like that, like so when when you go there to Poland to do the, the training, um are you put through some specific I mean, I don't know, is it like like a Cooper test in, in, in sport? You know what yeah, I mean? Like sure. this uh, beep test that, that Or, or like a what is it called? Like a six-minute mile or whatever it was sure. back in the days. So is that is that a way? You like you have to be able to be five minutes in the water, otherwise you can't become an instructor. Do, do you know what I mean? Sure. Is, is it something like that? You know, I, I thought it was going to be exactly something like that mm. when I went up there, and I was pretty concerned. I was pretty scared about how intense the cold exposure was going to be mm. when I was up there, or not before I got up there. And then it turns out it is it is not like that. Mm. They they want to check that all the future instructors live, like, they walk the walk mm-hmm. and they talk the talk. Mm-hmm. So we need to know the stuff, and we need to be daily practitioners of the method. Mm-hmm. So then the things we do there, you're already doing daily. Yes, you end up doing this ten minutes in the ice, and or maybe you'll do some recycling, which means two minutes in an ice bath, two minutes out, two minutes back in, two minutes out for quite a few times. So you'll do these kind of crazy things. But if you're practicing the method every day, you're already ready. Mm-hmm. You're mentally and physically ready for this. And they do not, they try and make a point to not push people. Beyond exactly what is normal yeah. Wim has you. Wim yeah. has always said feeling is understanding. So if you say to them, you know what, I've, I've done my three rounds of recycling. I don't need to do the next two rounds. They say, okay, you know your own physiology. We respect that and you can step back. Mm. Now to try and do the, the instructor course and not do any cold exposure. I think that's impossible, mm. but they do not make you do 60 minutes in the yeah, ice. Yeah, it's not like that, stuff, that you no. need to be able to do, do right. much more, 10 times more than our, than any future. No, they're not, they're not making you that, but they are making sure you know the stuff and that you are able to effect, uh, effectively communicate what the method yeah. is about. So you, they're, they're teaching you how to teach. Yeah. And there's a lot of that and a lot of repetition. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot to this. You know, it's not just, oh, go sit in the ice. You know, we have to learn how, what do you do before you get into the ice bath or before your cold exposure? What are you doing while you're in it? And then most importantly, what are you doing after the cold? Because that's when you've got to be the most careful. Mm. So to not shiver. Got to make sure not to shiver. No, it turns out that's not true. Shivering is fine if, yeah. you want, if you want to shiver. But also if you want to continue the mind over body that we've been learning about already and you want to continue that in your recovery, then... There are ways to recover without shivering. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> what has been like? What what impact does has this had on your life? You know, like if you if you look at it in a broader sense, you know, both maybe let's say physically and mentally. Yeah. So there's there's so many things that are that we just take for granted that we've picked up as we go through this society and, you know, whatever generation we were raised in, or like you and I have some overlap and there's certain things that were uh, ingrained in us. And I'm challenging these, this kind of framework. And this method helps me to change, challenge the framework. For example, uh, 
you know, walk it off. Don't be a wussy. You know, you, you have some feeling. Just walk it off. That's how we were raised. Mm. Hey, ignore your feelings. Let's get, let's get going. Uh, uh, don't be a wuss. Uh, well, it turns out what we're feeling is important. Mm. So the more we can be in touch with what we're feeling, and then I don't mean then go cry about it in a corner. Oh, but, but let's deal with it. it yeah. yeah, let's process it. Mm. And, I, and we were never taught to process it. So this has been one big takeaway for, mm. for me that I've applied to many things. You know, it's improved my relationships. I can be more caring and more feeling and understanding in my relationships. I came back from that week in Poland, and I think my relationship with my entire family improved. And I was mm. not like a ice man. You know, I wasn't a uh, cold guy, but I also wasn't open and, uh, you know, wasn't a big hugger or, you know, like these things that kind of, you know, you have these barriers around you, these layers of protection that you don't really, you're not fully aware of. And the method helps to challenge all of these kind of preconceived notions that we have about how to protect ourselves or, or, um, so this is, by the way, this is a lot of the stuff that probably you were not asking about. But for me, it was some one of one of the bigger takeaways. Yeah, but uh, but but on, uh, it's an interesting thing because I guess this was not something you expected when you went in, into it. Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought I was going to learn how not to shiver. Yeah, you know, and we come out of it with you know becoming a better, person. as far as I'm concerned, a better person. Yeah. And and uh, but what about like physical health and and stuff like that? I mean, do you feel any yeah. difference on that or a hundred percent? So. I was always, I would always like exercise in my life. You know, I could go to the gym or I could go to the pool or I could do that thing. I was not a sedentary, sedentary person. But on the other hand, I, <clears throat> I wouldn't push myself too far, right? There were these, wouldn't like, oh, if I, if I don't feel like it, you might not go to the gym that day. You know, rather than looking at why you're not, why you're considering not going to the gym mm. and overriding that and replacing it with a good long-term decision, which is go to the gym. Don't sit there. Don't have that extra drink late at night. Mm-hmm. You know, you go to the gym in the morning. So, so I could handle that kind of stuff in general. But, but how about going out into the, um, if you look at some other challenges and you get used to these challenges every day, like we have a forest where we live in Lahotka. And so I would get up and go barefoot in my shorts to the forest in the snow, you know, minus six degrees, go for a walk in the forest, maybe even a jog, a barefoot jog, and then come back because I knew that I wanted to keep pushing my envelopes. Mm. And one of the envelopes was, oh, I don't feel like it. Why would I do it? Well, you've got to do it all the time, mm. regardless of, of that particular feeling. If that feeling is one of laziness or staying in comfort when you could find more satisfaction out of the comfort zone. And so now whatever those challenges are, once you build up that resolve, you can apply it to these other things. So just like Will I wake up extra early and go to the pool in the morning for that workout? Yes, I will. Mm. Am I swimming faster now that I can get those early morning workouts in without second guessing it ever? Now it's not like, oh boy, you know, I hit the alarm. Should I, you know, should I go or not go? Now it's, I know I'm going. Mm. And I know this is where I'm happy. And I know how I'm going to feel after. And you get used to analyzing the difference between the catalog of reasons not oh, to go beforehand yeah. and then the catalog of reasons you're thrilled that you went after. And mm. pretty soon you're focused more on that second list of reasons. Mm-hmm. And that keeps you doing these things that make your life more rewarding. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because uh, <clears throat> yeah, I, I, I do a little bit of this running and I mean, I, I go to the gym as well and, and I've done some cycling stuff. and A little bit, that's a good one. Yeah, you're running a marathon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, like I'm not like a running a marathon every month or, or three, four a year. I mean, or, and, 
But I like these things, you know, like I, I dream about going to Mount Everest, for example. That, yeah. that has always wow. been when I saw that movie, this Everest movie where all the people died. I was like, I need to get there, you know, man, not, not necessarily on that day but no. where they died. But I did not have that feeling. I saw the same movie. Yeah, I, so. I came out of the gym. I was like, I, I really need to get there. And I so I, I, I really can relate to this pushing um, and kind of that, that part. And the, the, the feeling of achieving this is so great. But on the other hand, I also, like, I, I, when I, you know, because I go, because I'm from Iceland, so I'm used to rain, I'm used to snow, I'm used mm. to the wind being from all sides. So yeah. so for me to, I don't know, run in the snow is no big deal. You know, like, it's just, well, there was no... It's how you grew up. Yeah, there's no big part of the year. Yeah. And I guess the same for you in Chicago. I mean, you can We would get, run in the snow with shoes on. Yeah. You know, yeah, 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 no, no barefoot. Yeah, yeah. No, no barefoot no, no, running. I, yeah. I don't do that. Okay. But... but but I can see how, how somehow, you know, I, I tell my girlfriends, you know, like, she's, are you really going to go out and run in this? And I said, yeah, yeah, these are the runs that make you a man. Exactly. And, exactly. and then she said, okay, it's a good thing. I don't want to be a man. I'm no, not going no. with you, you know. But, but I feel like uh, in some way we, we have built these societies around comfort. Yes. In yeah. every sense of that word. Yeah. You know, like, and, and. And that means that something that maybe isn't an extreme. I mean, yeah, I agree. Barefoot in the snow is not your everyday Joe. Right. But being out in the rain, that's just human. You know, yeah. that, that's just, we are waterproof, you know? Right. And who wants to be afraid to go out? Yeah. Like but people are. Yeah. So we can challenge that and we find, mm. you know what? It's amazing out there. Mm. It's amazing to be able to do it. It's yeah. amazing to do it. And then when you're done, you feel even better. Yeah. So it's... So it's eliminating these fears, like yeah. these challenging these yeah. paradigms somehow. Exactly. Yeah. But um, <clears throat> so so when I when I I'm done with that workshop that I'm going to on the twentieth of of May, then uh, I'll be able to. I, I will feel something after that. Would you think? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I will. I will be. I will come home and hug someone. You're gonna be. You're gonna be a hugger. Yeah. Elmar, you'll be a hugger now. <laughs> No, but do you know what I mean? Is it immediate? Do, do, do you feel like some immediate f- benefit or change? So if we do our job mm. the me- and, the, and we bring out the method the way it should be brought out, which we've had great success doing that, that is where you are definitely, you are connecting more to yourself, like I was describing earlier. You're going mm. to connect more to these people that mm. are there around mm. you. And eventually there'll be some more connection with nature. That's some of the other stuff I was talking about. You know, you feel mm. closer to nature if you go out in the rain, mm. do your run in the rain, mm. if you do the swim in the cold water mm. or you know, the walk through the forest when there's snow on the, on the ground. <clears throat> so yes, you will have all of the tools that you need and I think you'll want to continue with the practice. Some more, yeah. Yeah, so you'll, you'll be hugging, you'll be less afraid or concerned about the cold. I don't know how your relationship mm. is right now with it. You seem pretty relaxed uh. about a little bit of ice here and there. Mm. But uh, so this is like, a, you're like a drug dealer. You're going to give me the first dose, four hours, and then I'm going to come back for more. And then, so that's there. It's a good metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> the drug dealer. But then you're going to get high on your own supply. Yeah. yeah. Which right. I, I never felt as high as when I finished a marathon. Wow. Yeah, I believe I, that. It's like, I remember the first time I... I I finished, my parents were there. I just walked past them and I, I, I started flirting with the best looking girl that was wow. standing there because yeah. I felt that I was indestructible. Yeah. yeah. And I, w- I was still like me. You know, it was like there was no chance this girl mm. would 
look at me, you know, yeah. but I just felt like, yeah, she must like me. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, look at me. Yeah, look at me. Look I just I did do. a marathon. Mm. Yeah, there were 5,000 people ahead of me, mm. but I didn't care about that. Um, so just... How long did that feeling last? I don't know. It was like... I mean, I would say the rush was just like half an hour. Yeah. 40 minutes maybe. But but I felt good afterwards because yeah. I knew I can, I can do this. Yeah. You know? There's and, and, but I... I was lucky in that sense that that my parents kind of raised me with that mindset that there's no one out there better than you. Mm. Mm. It doesn't mean that they're bad, but right. they're not necessarily. They have ten fingers, ten toes. Yeah, and uh, whatever they put their pants on one leg yeah, at a time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and whatever they can do, you can do if you put your mind to it. You know, and 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 nice. so on. So I, I kind of always had this arrogance to. I can why why shouldn't I not be able to do something sure. like this? Yeah. You know, like there's no logic in that thought yep. that I can't. Yep. So I think in that way, I think I I maybe kind of expected that I could do all these things. You know, I I, I and yeah, I wasn't kind of I don't know maybe if I would have been f- heavier or something mm. or or in a, in a worse physical condition, I might have thought, okay, yeah, well this this I really beat the odds here. You know, yeah. Tell me how. So, do you do you start your morning? You said okay, you go out barefoot in the in the woods, minus six. But do you do like a cold bath or something like that every morning? Yes, every every morning I do the cold, at least a, sh- a cold shower. Mm-hmm. So that means I wake up, I do the breath work, which we'll talk about later. Or mm-hmm. You're going to experience in full mm-hmm. uh, in a few weeks. I do the breath work. It kind of sets my tone, gives me some you know an empowered feeling for the rest of the day. And, uh, and then when it's shower time, I take a cold, so I'll take a warm shower, I'll take your normal shower and then I'll put it all the way to cold. Mm -hmm. I'll normally play one song on whatever song is on my playlist. Stairway to heaven? Yeah. It could be painted black. It could be, you know, stairway to heaven. 11 minutes. (laughs) Exactly. No, we haven't tried that one yet. That'll be my challenge tomorrow. Thank you. So I play one song, keep it on full cold, Mm. which again, this is not like an ice bath, but you will get the full physical, Mm -hmm. all the physical effects you'll get from a cold shower as long as it's, let's say, a minute and a half or two minutes. And so let's say mine are about three or four on average. And then if we have a workshop, I'll get in the ice bath. Or if somebody else has a workshop and they invite my wife and me to go and they say, look, you know, uh, we should be over at four. Why don't you come by at 4.30? We'll go in the ice bath together because it's already set up. You know, because otherwise you have to go source the ice. You know, it's not like it's available every day. Oh, that's true. Yeah. But right now in the Voltava, for example, in the river in the center in Branik, Mm. We'll go there pretty often. Right now, it's it's like seven or eight degrees, mm-hmm. so that's plenty cold mm-hmm. to get your cold on. You know, two, three, four, five minutes in that, and you will you'll get all the benefits. So, to the ones watching and and uh, listening, like if they wanted to try something just at home, um, what two minutes under a cold shower in the morning? I would not start with that. I would start with maybe this thing we call the the cold shower challenge you could probably find this document uh-huh. if, you, if you googled it cold shower challenge maybe cold shower challenge wim hof i think the document would probably come up and it's where you see uh five days per week for four or five weeks four i guess that would be mm-hmm. four weeks where i guess you get two days off i didn't, yeah. know, I didn't know about that going through <laughs> the training you get these days off uh and so you start off i think 15 seconds because if you haven't taken a cold shower before you don't want to just try and start off with two minutes and then uh-huh. have this aversion to cold. You want to build it up. Oh. 
And especially if you're by yourself and you haven't done the breath work before and you haven't you know, mentally prepared yourself and like been coached. So we're, we'll bring people into an ice bath, but it'll take us a few hours to get them to the point where we're even putting the ice in the water. Mm. And so this challenge, you start off, I think, with 15 seconds and okay. then you build up by the end of the, of the four weeks up to two minutes. And, and the benefit that someone, some regular would feel would be energy or... or Yeah, so your goal there is you, you will definitely feel much more energy by the time you get out. Now, if it's a 15-second one, the energy, the, the boost will not be as big. And then the mm. longer you go up to the two minutes, the more energy and the more kind of euphoria and these happy yeah. hormones that we were talking about will, they'll come out. And the immune, um, system, immune system, I guess, will be boosted as well. Yes, they've done many studies and they show that cold exposure, you know, with, with the Wim Hof method or without, mm. you know, there's other ways to do this. The Wim Hof method, we recommend certain things. But in general, cold exposure, if you do the 60 to 90 second cold shower every single day and you practice that every single day, then your chances of having a sick day, this is one of the studies they did with a few hundred participants, the chances of you having a sick day and having to not go into work because you're sick are 30% lower than if you were not taking those cold showers. Mm -hmm. So we have to do these other things to be healthy. You know, we've got to eat well, we've got to have movement in our lives, right. exercise, sleep. And so this is yet another mm. layer to make us healthier. I mean, it will not make sh this will not guarantee you don't get sick, but it will definitely increase your chances of staying healthy longer. Mm. I, I, I actually, uh, some years ago, I don't know, like seven, eight years ago, I started using cold baths as a recovery after long runs. Right. And uh, I, I completely changed my my kind of after-post-run routine in a way because when I was starting to run the first long runs, there were like 20, yeah, 18 to 25 kilometers, something like that. Wow. Then, and I would do that like once a week, every Saturday or something. Then usually the day was ruined. You know, I kind of felt like... I felt the rest really, of that day. Yeah. Yep. I was kind of drained. You know, I had a headache and and I, I would kind of spend the day on the couch, you know, mm. and, and almost felt like a hangover, you know, because you completely kind of depleted yourself of all minerals yeah, and vitamins and all that stuff. And I didn't really have any kind of either... No, during, I didn't drink or or eat anything during the run. Mm. And then after the run, I didn't really have any any kind of routine. I would do stretching. And so what I actually started doing is I stopped stretching immediately after yeah. the run. But I would go into a cold bath okay, for like one or two minutes. Like just water from the faucet, not yeah, ice. Yeah, I was, yeah, just water from the faucet, yeah. like the coldest that I could sure. get from the faucet. Yeah. It's cold and enough. I, it's probably like 12 degrees. Yeah. So I would sit there for like a minute or two. And apparently what, what that does is that it kind of stops the toxins from flowing. Yeah around the body it kind of stops them in their in their spot in a way yep. and uh, and then or actually before I would do that I would I would lie on my back with my legs up mm -hmm. so that it would kind of I guess I don't know send the blood to my kidneys or something like that yeah <laughs> and and then I would go into that bath and then I would come out then I would eat something and it just changed completely now I'm eight years older yeah I go out less trained I do longer runs at a higher pace, but because I keep this routine, I don't even feel like I did anything. No it's, kidding. It's, it's, it's silly, you know. Just like, two minutes in the cold water. Yeah. Hmm. It has such a big yeah. impact. And, I mean, obviously, uh, complimenting with, with, you know, proper nutrition afterwards yeah. and stuff like sure. that. But yeah. I, yeah. And you still don't eat during the run. 
You don't have like those gels. No, I, I do that only when in the race, like okay. on the race day, because I kind of think about it as a boost that I can I get get myself something that yeah. I am not used to, and that's that's again comes to this um, to building this mindset and physical that if you push yourself to some level, anything below that is going to be easier. Yeah. So yeah. what I do yeah. when I train is that I train in worse conditions. I don't take water with me. Unless nice. I go really far, yeah, and I don't eat unless I in a race, right? And so I I try to train myself in a condition that is always going to be worse than on race day. Wow, that's so good. On, that's very smart. Yeah. So yeah. on race day, I will get plenty of water. Yeah. I will get I will get the the energy gels. I will get some fruit. Even I will yep. get my my mineral tablets that mm. I take. Nice. I, I deprive myself of this stuff during the training a lot to to kind of feel that oh wow I'm getting that extra boost right. on a race day mm. and uh, and I often also train on empty stomach just to kind of really get my <laughs> because then yeah. when I when I go for the marathon I I will have a meal like three four hours before and I'll feel like wow this is such a luxury this is not even hard you know that's so smart. Well, yeah, I don't know. I Mental mean, and physical. Yeah, it's it somehow has helped a lot because uh, nothing feels hard, you know. It's yeah. just something I need to do, but right. it's not over. You know, it's not like what you say. Like it's not like uh, Mission Impossible. Yeah, I get it. That's pretty smart uh, training. Yeah, a pause. You pause a little bit, yeah. Yeah, um, we had a little bathroom break here. Um, I've been feeding you too much water and coffee. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you mentioned swimming, and I know that you 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 wrote a book called Diving Back In. Right. Um, and I think you you were swimming back in the U.S. a lot. Exactly, I swam. I was one of those age group of swimmers uh-huh. as a kid, so from about the age of eight until the age of seventeen. Okay. Spent a lot of time in the water, and then you kind of get back into it here, or 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 you stopped it for like. Yeah, exactly. I tried to. I loved it, and I had these you know high hopes as a kid, and you know a lot of age group swimmers did, and so uh, you know the faster that you got, the more they would have you train. To the point we were training kind of crazy amounts, and I was tired in school all the time, and I kept trying like you know loftier and loftier goals. But then I think at one point it was uh, stop being fun. Mm-hmm. I think it's happened to a lot of people in a lot of sports yeah. and, and for sure in age group swimming. And then at one point I was applying to uh, Arizona State University and I had an interview with the coach, the swim coach. And these other schools were going to have me on their swim team. I was going to swim in college. It was obvious. I'm mm-hmm. a good swimmer. I'm going to swim in college. And then this coach and ASU at the time was the best swim team in the nation. Mm. And these other coaches, they would sit me down in their office or they'd give me a tour of the campus or whatever. It was always, always felt like it was obvious I'm going to swim for this particular school. And this coach had a swim training going on with his team. So imagine a, a pool full of swimmers, beautiful day in Arizona, as they almost all are. And we're walking back, like down the pool. He's yelling at the swimmers and asking me for various times of my, the events that I was good in. We turn around at the end of the pool. We come back. We're still talking about my times. And then he says to me, without even looking direct, directly at me, all right, well, you're not fast enough. 
And he turns around, just walks away. Mm-hmm. Down to the other, you know, keeps coaching his swimmers. And it was very, it was like, a, I would, obviously it was not trauma, but it was a very discouraging mm-hmm. moment for me. After having spent all this time in a pool. Yeah. And, yeah. and I thought, okay, so this is how it's going to end. Yeah. With this guy yeah. dissing me right here. And so I was pretty, pretty offended. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just I'll never swim again. Mm-hmm. So we hang up the goggles forever is what I thought. And then it turns out there was a water polo team. Okay. And the water polo team was much more casual. And they let me join them. And I wasn't a very good water polo player, but I was the fastest swimmer on the team. Yeah. Even though I wasn't that good. Uh, and I eventually learned the skills and it ends up being this amazing sport. So I played some water polo for them. Um, but I didn't swim again. And I had no desire to. Like that guy was the final drop, so yeah. to speak, in removing the desire to swim again. And then like, like seven years ago or so, I'm having lunch with a guy at, in the restaurant in Yama. Yeah, and he's a friend of mine, this kind of all-around athlete guy, but not a swimmer, but a you know, very fit guy. And he says, "Yeah, I was in the swim meet in London." I said, "Okay, wait. What do you mean a swim meet? You're you're 45 years old." Mm-hmm. And he said, "Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's master swimming. I had never heard of. Had, had you ever heard of master no. swimming? I had never heard of it before. Well, mm-hmm. it turns out that age group swimming continues. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, it starts at 25, and that instead of two-year increments, it's five-year increments from like 25 to 30, 30, 35." And you can swim competitively in your age group with uh-huh. other people who are also. And so I was intrigued. And so after like 30 years, I decided, I asked my family if they were, if they were okay with me joining a swim team. Uh-huh. And, uh, and they all agreed, although my wife agreed, because she knows that's it's like trainings away from the family and maybe a swim meet here and there where I won't mm-hmm. be with the family on the weekend. So my wife agreed, and I thought that was pretty cool. And the kids agreed, although I don't think they really cared. Yeah. At that point, my yeah. teenagers, you know, yeah. and uh, and so I joined the swim team, and but but just to do that, I had to get over a bunch of fears, mm-hmm. you know, the fear of I'm going to join and fail again, mm-hmm. right, or I'm going to join and have another discouraging experience again, or I'm going to join, I'm not going to be any good anymore, or I'm going to join and you know, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. After 30 years of not swimming, mm-hmm. that it's going to be uh, it's going to be awful. So so I overcame it. And then I, I get so much joy out of this sport, more than I ever did as a kid. Mm. And so I wrote the book is about that. So diving back in, and I mm. use swimming as the metaphor mm. for returning to something as an adult that you once loved to do as a kid. Mm. And now with our adult sensibilities, you know, now uh, we're more mature, we've got bigger and, perspective uh, and relationship. Yeah, I, uh, I can enjoy, all, yeah, I can enjoy the trainings more. I can enjoy the camaraderie more. I can enjoy like setting the goal and then overcoming if I don't achieve that goal. Mm. it's okay. I'll set the next goal, right? Instead of being disheartened or, you know, I didn't make the, you know, the Olympic team or this you know, university team or whatever the goal was mm. at the time. So I'm so excited about it. I had to write a book. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be swimming. You know, like it could be playing the guitar. Yeah, Someone yeah, gave yeah. it up at 18 or yeah, something. I, I'm, I'm one of those. Yeah. Yeah. I, I started playing again after having given up at 18 or something. And it's interesting. I was actually having a conversation with my dad about this. He spent a week with me here and, and, and he was telling me, because he, he starts being a fisherman, like 12, 13 years old, you know, goes on these yeah. boats, and, and like, he told me some really crazy stories, you know, he's in a month in Nigeria, and, and uh, he's in Russia, in Siberia in 1975, and, you know, like... No kidding. Crazy stuff. Yeah. And he, he says, you know, like, all of this was tough, but I wouldn't have wanted to be without it, and... And it really made me think about it that some of the things that I struggled with the most as a kid or a teenager, like, are the things that I actually appreciate maybe the most yeah. right now, you right. know? So, and 
and yeah, I want to go back to those things, mm. and because now I'm a better person, you know, or, yeah. or there is more of me somehow sure. than was back then. Good description. More yeah. of me now. Yeah, but I'm curious with the swimming and the Wim Hof because you know, like I, we learn swimming in Iceland. It's a big. I, I think it's because we're a fisherman nation that like it's right. uh, it's a very kind of a go at six years old you go to the pool and you go once a week until you're 18 basically oh no kidding yeah and, right. and with the instructor and everything yeah. and you have to learn but i mean obviously <clears throat> all, all four strokes yeah okay. so you have the breaststroke the backstroke and the and the the butterfly. crawling yeah the crawling the no, crawl. yeah the butterfly we didn't really do like okay. but we had breaststroke backstroke and and back uh, crawling and front crawling sure. yep. so and there is some diving as well like you know just to kind of, you know, should be able to do 25 meters in the water or something like that. Nice. Okay. And, uh, but it, I mean, I, my, I was never like a, a good swimmer. And what I realized, because I would love to do like an Ironman and the swimming part is like four kilometers. So, so if I do, I did one triathlon here, which was just with 500 meters swimming and <laughs> I was so slow in the water that they were gonna. I could see that they were thinking about fishing me no, out. You know the organizers. No, you no. know. And I'm they so were glad like, they didn't. Yeah, they, and there were like these seventy-year-old guys, like just racing by me. Yeah. And I, 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 I made it up in the biking and then in the running, so I, it was okay. But, but then I just realized my problem is the breathing. Right. I don't. I don't get that rhythm somehow. Yeah. And and. When I when I saw that you're a swimming guy and then the Wim Hof is very much a breathing thing as well, some connection there or or you you know what I mean? Is there? Yeah, there's some overlap. Mm. There's some overlap. I mean, definitely when you do the breath work every single day, you are increasing your lung capacity, mm-hmm. right? And so you need good lung capacity for swimming, you know, especially if you're going to do an Ironman. Yeah. Then we're going to need some especially good lung capacity, which I imagine you have. You're running these marathons. This will. You know, so if you have a sedentary lifestyle mm. and, you know, you're, you're at an office job and you don't go to the gym, you're, you don't do any, not even long walks and stuff every day, and then you start to do the Wim Hof method, your lung capacity, you will notice within days that you're improving mm-hmm. your lung capacity. If you're already a runner. Yeah, yeah it would take longer. or You might not notice that yeah. big of a difference. For me, for example, uh, I was, you know, swimming already regularly before I started the method. And I, so I haven't noticed that big of a difference in the normal swimming. Mm-hmm. But we have these things called underwaters, which is like when you dive in or when you do a flip turn and then you push off. I feel like my underwaters are much, much better now uh-huh. because I, my breath hold, it's easier to hold there under the water. And then for the rest of the race, it's about the same. At least mm-hmm. I haven't noticed a difference. So maybe mm-hmm. it's 1% better or, or something like that. But, um, but it definitely helps me with the underwaters. So with otherwise applying the br- the breathing to the actual sport of swimming, that would be a difficult. Mm-hmm. It would be difficult. You can definitely do the breath work before a race or in between. Like I'll be at a swim meet where maybe I'll have four races in one day, and after two races I'll do the breath work, mm-hmm. and I'll kind of re-energize, kind of reboot my entire cardiovascular system, and then I feel better ready for, for the, the next, next two. One. Yeah. Okay, so it's more like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It also helps me focus. Yeah. You know, so if you can. Doing the breath work gets you out of your head and into your body. Mm. So if you're out there, a lot of the things that are damaging us are all these useless thoughts of the monkey brain, mm. you know, questioning whether we should go out and do this, whether we should, uh, you know, what could happen with this? So why am I here? Why am, I don't want to get too specific, but all these things, these thoughts that are not helping us. And so mm. the breath work helps us to take control of those thoughts mm. and keep the brain on track 
that brings us to where we want to go rather than distracting us. Yeah, but I guess that's difficult. Like if, like, uh, yeah, as I said, I mean, there's, we have built like, uh, at least in the Western world, um, like a very comfortable and a lot of excuses, you know, like we, we are, we're always saying it's okay to be unhealthy. It's okay to be this. It's okay to be that. And yeah, when did when did that start? I don't know, but but and it it is okay, but it 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 cannot mean that we are saying that's how you should be forever. Right. I don't know. Let let's take the alarm. You say okay, so it's very tempting to to hit the snooze button on the alarm and not go for that swim in the morning or whatever right um it's okay if you do it once but if you do it 70 percent of the time it's not okay right so i think i think i think for me like we have taken this okay to that one or two occasions it's okay to eat i don't know comfort eat yeah but you, you shouldn't do that three meals a day seven days a week right you can do that one meal per week or right or two meals per week yeah. or something when like you're that. on the road or yeah. some yeah and I and I and I I somehow, I somehow feel that I don't know why I started talking about this that that we have, we have kind of, yeah because you were saying those yep. feelings you yep. know like these these because we we all have this I I have a constant monkey sitting on my shoulder yeah. telling me to smoke a cigarette, eat yep. a candy, yep. buy a pizza or whatever but right. but I just have to silent that motherfucker you know exactly. because otherwise I'll yeah. be 150 kilos and yeah. I wouldn't do anything you right. know. Right. And and it's just the whole day and a whole week and the whole month and the whole year is a struggle with that devil, you know. And we don't need a society that is now telling us it's okay yeah, to, to listen, listen to, to him. him. Yes, yeah. and that, and that, and that's uh, and I think because yeah, sometimes he will have a stronger voice, but it just can't be always because that right. leads to disaster. You exactly, know? chaos. Yeah. Anyway, talking about chaos. I, I kind of wanted to move us a little bit into. You came here to Prague, Czech Republic, 1992. Yeah, that must have been chaos. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, I felt like I was in uncharted territory. Right. No, and I was just a kid, right? So I, I'm a kid. I was 23, I guess, 23 years old, and I thought, oh, I'm going, going behind the Iron Curtain. You yeah. know, America. In Americans, we have these, these ideas of what it was like to live in the Soviet bloc and stuff, and. Uh, <clears throat> Gray, rainy, like we see in the movies. Exactly. Everything from the Eastern Bloc gray, is gray yeah, and yeah. rainy. No, they, they didn't have paint anywhere. No, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And this mist everywhere, yeah. you know, like Kafka-esque mist. Yeah. And um, so I came over in 1992. I was living in, in France for a while, uh-huh. for a year after school. And then after a year in France, I was going to move, move back to America and, and get my MBA. You know, that was my life plan, was get an MBA, work really hard for 20 years save up enough money to open up my dream restaurant. Okay. And that was literally my life plan. Because throughout college, I worked in restaurants, the Hard Rock and the Improv Comedy Club. Uh-huh. And I loved it. I loved being around the action. The and I loved, Yeah, stuff, stuff's going on. You know, it's yeah. a place where people are engaging fully in life. And there's, you know, it could be a comedy show. It could be, a, you know, a, a rock band. It could be, you know, Guns uh-huh. N' Roses came uh-huh. to the Hard Rock while I was there playing three songs to this kid. Uh, who made a wish at the Make a Wish Foundation? He was yeah, a kid yeah, who was dying yeah. of a terminal illness, and his wish was to hear Guns N' Roses play in the Hard Rock Cafe in Chicago. No, yeah, and so I got to work security for for that particular 
gathering. Wow. And, uh, you know, and a cheap trick was that, I mean, cheap trick and yeah. Bo, Bo Diddley and like there's these, you know, other great musicians. Wow. And so I always loved it. And I always thought, okay, I want to have my own place one day, but of course you have no money. Mm. So I thought, okay, I'll work, I'll make enough money and then I'll open up my own place. And so, so I was in France for a year. I was getting ready to go back to the States. I thought, okay, how about one more year in Europe, but I want to move somewhere else. Mm. And I had been hearing as I was living in Paris, people coming through Paris, all these tourists saying, man, we came from Prague. Prague's amazing. Mm. You got to check out Prague. So I got a Eurail pass where for two months, I think it was, it was a two-month Eurail where I could travel as much as I wanted for 15 days out of the 60. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember those, mm-hmm. you know, 1992. Mm-hmm. So I visited a bunch of locations and I made sure Prague was one of them. And although the Eurail pass, it didn't, it didn't get me to into Czechoslovakia. It was still Czechoslovakia then. It did get me to the border, and then it was like a dollar fifty mm-hmm. to get to Prague mm-hmm. from the border. You remember what the prices were like? Yeah. I don't know if you know, but and uh, and so I got to Prague my first time, and it was it was awesome. Yeah. It was amazing. Like you're seeing all this. Be- I was coming from Paris, like maybe the most beautiful yeah, city yeah, in the world. Yeah. And you come from Paris, and you come to a city of equal beauty that mm. you had never seen before. Yeah. Like we'd all seen the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, right? yeah we'd it's all opened seen- in the movies. Right. And, yeah. So never seen Charles Bridge, never seen Prague Castle, you know, Vishahrad, Old Town Square. Mm. I didn't know any of this stuff. And I'm walking along just in, in awe. And so I was thinking, how, how can I live here? Uh-huh. Yeah. And that thought came immediately? Yeah, within like, days. W- within days. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I stayed, you know, instead of two days, stayed for five days, came back again a month later, confirmed that this is a place that I could move to. And, and then I moved here one month after that. So within two months after visiting my first time, I moved here. To do what? So in Paris, I was an English teacher. Uh-huh. So I had an, a degree in teaching English as a foreign language. I had a literature degree. You know, it was a thing. I, I always liked the English language. I'm happy to teach it as I traveled through Europe was my plan until I got back and did the MBA thing. And in Paris, I was getting in between $14 and $20 an hour per lesson. And I got here. And they needed English teachers like salt, right? Mm. I mean, they needed English teachers. And there were many jobs available. And do you know how much they paid? Mm. $2 or something? $1 an hour. So I could have gotten a job just like that for a dollar an hour. I just couldn't bring myself to do Mm. it. I thought, I can't go. It's like, it's different. Like, if you just get to Europe or something, or you're just trying to have an experience. But I was coming, literally making 20 times that. And so I thought, okay, I got to do something else. And so I spent a lot of time in bars thinking about it. Mm meeting interesting people in these mm. bars, experts in the industry, you know, mm. otherwise known as you know, waitresses and bartenderses. Yes. And uh, spending a lot of time finding, you know, doing my due diligence and uh, with a friend of mine who moved over with me. I moved from Paris, he moved from London. And so we were researching this idea of actually opening, and he always wanted to open a restaurant too, this idea of opening the restaurant now instead of in 20 years. Mm. And it turned out, according to these industry experts, uh, that it was possible. Mm. And so we ended up uh, deciding to move here and make it happen. We went to the Chamber of Commerce. You know, we had a meeting with them. And it turns out, yes, Americans can set up a business if you do this, that, and the other thing. Bunch, a bunch of catch-22s there that we then kind of made our way through. And we wrote a business plan to try and get seed capital from friends and family mm-hmm. to invest in this Eastern Bloc nation, is how Americans viewed it, even though we know it's Central yeah. Europe. Uh-huh. And... <clears throat> And our first business plan was so bad because we were a couple English majors that no one invested, not a single dollar. Mm. So we had to go back to the library and meet with some 
other consultants and like we couldn't pay anybody anything. So we'd invite them to lunch and ask them questions during lunch. Right. So everyone's up for a free lunch. Right. Yeah. And so we asked these guys from like Price Waterhouse and. No. And, uh, <laughs> no, really? Simi- yeah. And it's like, how about you do these financials? We don't know how to do you know, Excel. We don't know how that works. Da, 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 da. And then in the library, we learned how to write a real business plan. And we wrote a real business plan that went from like 14 pages to 34 pages with a huge marketing segment and financials, you know, kind of pessimistic, neutral and optimistic outcome scenarios. Very pro. And it was, it was much better. I would definitely not describe it as pro, but it was much better. And we got enough money to open up, uh, to get the, the project started mm. from friends and family with the second business plan. And that ended up being with place. So then, we, yes, we got enough money. It, eventually, then the rest of the money we sourced here locally from two strategic partners. And then we opened up restaurant Yama mm-hmm. on Viamie Street near mm-hmm. Wenceslas Square in March of 1994. Mm-hmm. So it was about a year and a half after I moved here. Wow. So it took a while. I think just to get the seed capital is like the first six or eight months and then the rest of the time to find a location, to completely reconstruct the location, get all the permissions, et cetera, to open up. There was nothing there before. It was dead, empty space. I know this place. Uh, it's kind of, <clears throat> when I moved here in 2009, like uh, I think I went there once to watch the Super Bowl or something yeah. like that. I, you know, the, one of the first places that had proper burgers here. Yep. You you've had that place until just recently, right? Yeah, I think I had it for 27 years. I sold wow. it during that first year of COVID. Wow. Sold it for a bit of a COVID price, but yeah. I was I was happy to to sell it because I had two restaurants at the time and I needed extra money just to keep the other restaurant going. Mm-hmm. And it's still operating. I mean, Yama is still Yeah, it's interesting. So there were uh it was a Russian couple that bought it. Uh-huh. They they ran it for two years and they just sold it okay. just maybe two months ago. And they sold it to, the way I understand it, you know, don't quote me if I'm wrong, but what I have heard is they sold to these three Czech guys who used to go to Yama all the time. Uh-huh. And now and fans. And they loved it. Yeah. Okay. And now they have an Irish pub, and they wanted to make Yama. They wanted to continue with the concept of Yama, you know, okay. this American-style place. Yeah. And so they bought it about two months ago, and it's been under reconstruction since. I walk by it about every 14 days, yeah. and you can see they're doing a bunch of stuff. And yeah. They've got a good online presence where on Instagram they're saying, coming soon, coming yeah. soon, showing you pictures of how it looks and future meals that they're going to have. So it will continue. How, how coming here in 1992, I mean, like, uh, what was kind of the biggest culture shock for, for an American, like a young American? Yeah. Um, for sure, the biggest shock was the language. Mm. You know, so I had moved to France. I was there for a year. The French grammar and the American grammar are essentially the same, except we don't really use the subjunctive mm. in English. Mm. So I'm learning the French language, trying to become fluent, working at it every day, struggling, because I have no gift for languages. I mean, like mm. typical American guy, I have no gift. I have to work my butt off mm. to speak a language. So I'm working and working, and then I finally get a fluency degree thrilled like all right i can learn languages now so then i get to the czech republic i sign up for a czech course and the first day of the course i realize i will never speak this language Mm -hmm. there is nothing similar there is whereas french is like 30 percent even similar words if you say them with a french accent you'll get by there was nothing in the grammar was the same nothing with pronunciation no words nope i mean and it was uh it was incredibly daunting Mm -hmm. and i realized i eventually i learned to speak czech but at the time, yeah. I, I threw in the towel. I thought, I'm not going to do it. So I just learned how to order a beer and ask a girl out on a date. And uh, 
And that was about it. Gets you pretty far. It though. got me pretty far. Yeah. <laughs> but then we finally opened the restaurant and we had translators with us. Mm-hmm. We would pay a dollar an hour for these translators. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, okay, so we got to get rid of the translators. Otherwise, there'll always be this barrier between me and the customers and me and the staff. Mm. So translators were gone and we just had to learn how to speak Czech every yeah. day. So at the beginning, it was like Chinglish, yeah. you know, this hybrid kind of language, but the staff understood us, but nobody else understood. And then I would say within about a year, I finally got to conversational. Mm-hmm. So I was like, yeah, mid-1995 or so. And, and but, but doing business here, I mean, like, uh, I mean, there's a lot of talk always about corruption and stuff like, you know, like, or, or like, and then I don't mean like the big shot political corruption. I mean, like the, the smaller ones, you know, like to get this license for this and that yeah. and stuff, you know, did yep. you, did it feel like that, you know, like? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I I know you've got your stories as well, so I mm. want to hear yours. But there were other American businessmen in town mm. who had done business in America beforehand. I yeah. had, I had yeah, never yeah. done so it. So you didn't have anything to compare with? No preconceived notions of how mm. it was supposed to be. And I thought, okay, well, this is what you need to do to get your limited liability company ready in two months instead yeah. of in one year. Yeah. Then I will pay this money under the table to make that happen. Yeah. Right? And that's the most obvious thing that would yeah. happen. Uh, Uh, there would also be, let's say, an inspection from a department checking yeah. out. I won't even mention which department. Yeah. And you want to make sure that that inspection goes well. So maybe yeah. you'll supersede that inspection by sending in a person who knows someone in that department yeah. to make sure that everything goes smoothly. Uh, And those are the things you need to do because otherwise their hands are, you can find a hand that's stuck mm-hmm. out and they're asking for more. Yeah, and it's an interesting thing, actually, because I, I often think about this um I mean, I guess it was maybe even more back then in in the early days because it took a while before salaries kind of reached a decent level for people who were working for the government. Exactly. Yep. So, so, and they obviously saw the their superiors and they saw the politicians kind of grab whatever they could yep. in the privatization and all that stuff. And I I often think, because we still have this corruption here, I mean, like, it's... We're not talking about big things, but you know, it definitely you might I don't know, you might go to the foreign police or or some public office like that and it's better to take a box of chocolate with you or yeah. if you know like let's say you wrote a book for example. Yeah. And you might bring that book and you will sign it to that person and uh, you will yeah. slide a thousand check crowns, which is like forty sure. dollars yep. into that book and say, yep. Here's a gift from me and then you yep. know that you'll be top of the pile yeah. versus bottom of the pile. Exactly. That's a very good description. And it's in healthcare as well. Yeah. You know, you can pay yourself in, in yep. front of the line in hospitals and stuff yep. like that. And I often think about it, like, in in some way, some of this, like, isn't so bad, actually, because the alternative would be that everybody paid more taxes and these right. organizations would be funded better. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That mm-hmm. there would be, the salaries would be better... And the systems would be better, so that there wouldn't be a need or a chance for corruption. Yeah, there'd be more integrity in the yeah. workplace if yeah. everyone's getting paid enough yeah. to live off of. Right. But that would mean that all of us would pay more. Right now, if I pay myself a little bit ahead somewhere, at least I'm a user of that service. Yeah. So they're kind of you know like they're getting sure. the money from the person who's actually needs that service. Yeah. And I often think about if if the one of the reasons why it's not being kind of crack down on is that the politicians know that the public knows what they do so it's better just let them do their thing 
because then we get away with our thing. So yeah. uh, there's almost, yeah. I, I get this feeling that there is this kind of silent agreement yeah. in some way that let's just leave this. Everyone gets by somehow. Yeah. And and instead of kind of cracking down on it, I don't know if, if you have yeah. this. I, I would describe that way you described it as very, very, a very good description of how it was mm. in the 90s and early mm. 2000s. Mm. And now I feel like the lower level mm. has been more and more, has been decreased yeah. to a large degree. You know, thanks to the European Union legislation, mm. used to people, the higher wages, as you described. Yeah. Um, um, particular safeguards have been put in place throughout, I think also because of the European Union, to make sure that now when there's an inspection to the restaurant, there's always two people, never yeah. one person, um, et cetera. So there are those types of things that are in place, whereas I do not feel that at the higher levels there's there been any decrease. There is anything in place, no, no. no. I feel like it's worse than ever now. Wait, not particularly now, but I would say in the, up until this most recent election, I felt like the corruption was, was worse than mm. at any other time when I was living here. No, I mean, it's, you know, if you see if your local politicians and everyone around you are going to be corrupt, it's it's very hard to to say to yourself, yeah, but I'm going to do everything by the book. Right. I'm going to be the good right. guy here. And they, but but did, you, did you ever, like, starting out, you say, like, 94, 95, I mean, is there a mafia here? Do you know what I mean? Like, that, that it has comes to a restaurant and says, listen, guys, you've got to pay. Did you ever come across something like that? Yeah, so for sure there there was. So after the, I think in 1995, 96, we also opened up a rock and dance club okay. called called Club X mm. on Narodny Street. And then we moved it to Napchikopie about a year and a half or two years later. And these are kind of two of the main streets in Prague, like yeah. busy downtown streets. Top tier location. Oh. Top tier with like a thousand square meters in each place. You know, we could put in... 700 people into that club if it was a big night. Mm. So imagine you're charging at the door, you're charging for drinks, and you have 700 people coming into your club. Mm. That is a lot more income and attracts a whole different type of person in the mafia realm than mm -hmm. a restaurant that's selling beers and burgers. Mm -hmm. right, so that same mafia that would ignore, let's say, the original restaurant became interested in the club business. Mm -hmm. So we had a couple run-ins with them. You know, one came in and told us, for example, that they were our new security service. We said, no, we've already got one. They said, no, no, we're coming in tomorrow. We will be starting tomorrow as your security team. So what do you say to those guys? Mm. That was one that we had to deal with. Um, <clears throat> I remember one business partner that I had at the time who was a silent partner. He said, all right, well, then uh, you're going to have to get a shotgun. And when they come in, you're going to have to stand there with your shotgun. And mm -hmm. then they'll go away. I'm like, I don't think I'm ready to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm from Chicago, but that yeah. doesn't mean I'm walking around with a yeah. gun, you know. Yeah. And. Um, <laughs> but how do you deal with that? I mean, do you know what I mean? Like, and what's the mechanism? So they come in and they say, okay, we're your new security. Yeah. If you would just take them in and say, yeah, yeah, fine. Do oh. they, do they, do you pay? A lot? Yeah, you have to pay that whole team a lot oh. of money. And it would be, it could be the beginning of the end because you have slow nights. So how are you going to pay those guys on slow nights? They're, they're trying to command double what the normal security team would ask for. Mm -hmm. um, they were just, it was unsustainable to even mm -hmm. consider that. Plus you have to see those guys every day. Mm -hmm. So I asked all of my contacts and finally we had one contact who was peripherally connected to a Russian group. Mm -hmm. And he said, you need Igor. I was like, okay, what does that mean? So you will hire Igor and Igor will be at the door. Mm -hmm. I said, okay. So Igor comes the next day. 
enormous Russian guy. Not a big talker. <laughs> enormous guy. And, and I'm, I'm not talking muscle. Okay. Mm. And so we sit him in a tall bar chair at the, at the door behind the ticket counter. So there's a ticket counter where you buy your tickets mm. and then you've got to go through this security one before you can go in and down the stairs to the club. And he's just sitting there. And he is also one who costs double what our normal security team does. So we're paying him a chunk of money. But he's sitting there. This mafia group comes in. They see him. They don't say a word. They leave. Mm-hmm. They know that we're now connected to a different group of people and they're not going to touch us anymore. Mm-hmm. Problem solved. Except for one thing. Now we've got Igor. Yeah. And Igor wants his job. Yeah. So he keeps coming to work every day. And I'm not going to tell him he doesn't have a job. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so we're paying him you know, week after week. And one, like after, a, after like a week, we say, all right, so Igor, at least you can you rip these tickets. Yeah, you here. can do something. Yeah. And he said, no, no, no tickets. So he's sitting there. Doesn't do any like he's he looks threatening, right? Yeah. At the door. So people maybe feel more secure or less secure, depending on what mm-hmm. their, you know, setup is. And he won't even rip the tickets. And then fortunately at some point somebody else in the club business uh, needed Igor's services. Okay. So he got called away and then we were good. But for about a month we had a very highly paid uh, decor you know, threatening decor at yeah. the doorway. But 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 have you heard stories of of, of places that have had a I don't know, like threats that have been been realized somehow. You know, I don't know, burned down or ruined or something. Like, do do you know? No, I never, I never really heard no. so much about this here. Not in my, not in my group. And I know a bunch of these guys who've been around since the yeah. '90s as well. We yeah, probably yeah. have a bunch of mutual friends that we could yeah. talk about, and we share stories pretty often. I've not even heard these guys. Mm. We've had these run-ins. You know, someone has their, you know, someone threatens to break their legs. Yeah, that happened to my business partner, one of the other club exes. Um, which did not happen, but mm. that, that mafia did end up getting us legally forced out of the location uh-huh. because they pulled their shenanigans with the judge who was in charge of this particular case. We had all of our, we had dotted all of our I's, crossed all our T's. Our contract was rock solid, but they paid off the judge and the judge ruled against us and they forced mm. us out of the location. Mm. So there are other ways that it works without just violence. It's an interesting, yeah, it's, it's but, but this what you're saying, forcing out of a location, it's a, uh, It's one of the things that is a little bit scary here sometimes is that you see, but I mean, I guess it happens everywhere, but here is maybe it, the system doesn't protect you as well. Like, let's say you open up a, a business in someone's space, you rent that space, and he actually sees that business is going well. Yeah. Then it can be very tempting for that person not to extend your lease or something yeah. like that and kind of get you out take because it. they know it's too expensive for you to take down everything that you built in there. You know, you yep. have a ventilation system or whatever. So yep. that's going to stay. So he saves himself that investment and he can either start a new business or he can sell that off yep. that space and that leads to somebody else. Mm. And I always had a feeling that it's easier to kind of get away with dirty tricks here than what I'm used to in Scandinavia, for yep. example. I mean, obviously that's a smaller community, but how would that be? I mean, business ethics here versus the U.S. I mean, well, you never ran a business there. I never ran a business there. And like I said, if for in some ways that was a good thing, oh. and in some ways not so good. But I agree with what you just said as well. Mm. We had one point in the second one, the second club on Napshikopje, where uh, the landlord didn't want us to remove some of our equipment. Mm. And so we were, you know, we were fully paying the, the lease every single month. And we went in to get some stuff out because we were changing some things around. And he said, no, I don't want you taking anything out of your club. We said, all right, well, we're, we're taking it out. I mean, there's mm-hmm. nothing you can do. So he put a security guard there 
with a giant chain, a big padlock at the end of the chain. And he was standing in front of our door and stopping us while they had a locksmith come in and change the locks right on us. And we had paid the lease. We could show we paid the lease. We could show that we were, mm. you know, uh, law-abiding business people. Yeah. I had my lawyer come in. I called the cops. The cops looked at this guy, who was one of the mafia members running the street, mm. and said, we're not going to do anything here. Mm-hmm. And they walked away. And I had my lawyer talking to them about it. I thought, if we can make this all official, then we're going to get back in. And there was no official way to get back in. Mm. I had to bring a guy, I had to bring a group of 15 guys, surround the door and have our own locksmith come in so that we could get back in the door. You know, we, like, we needed more tough guys uh, than they had. Uh, and that was the only way in. Wow. Just it was like uh, guerrilla warfare yeah. you know, somehow. And, and, but this has changed. Th- this... Yeah. It's less nowadays, I guess. I mean, yep. and you hear less about these things, right? Yeah, and I haven't had a club like that and no mafia interactions at all since, mm-hmm. you know, those late 90s. Mm-hmm. So if there are other things going on, I do not know about them. Yeah, yeah. But they, they would hit the the um, the um high-end places. Yeah, that are downtown. Pulling in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because so there's a lot of cash. Exactly. The prime streets, yeah. you know, where just the rent on that street could be five times what I would pay. You know, my place right now is on Ostrovny Street at Nadovny yeah. Street. It's some normal rent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, normal, but still downtown. Yeah, it's, it's high for Prague. I mean, it's Prague 1, so it's high, yeah. but it's not crazy high like if it was on Par- you know, Pajishka Street. Yeah. yeah. It could be five times more there. And uh, th- th- what I often think about with this is that <clears throat> kind of one of the Uh, it's a weird thing to say benefits of a corrupt system. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You'll be the first one to say yeah. this. Uh, <laughs> no, um, what I feel here versus living in Scandinavia is that I in, in Scandinavia, I I feel that government and, and authorities are very, they're kind of very much in your face somehow. Mm. Like, um, I remember when I lived in Denmark, the the... the tax would be sending you letters and asking questions all the time mm. uh, and uh, and even when the the post office was on strike the tax was somehow still able to send you a letter so that it's like i don't know yeah. they had their own distribution or whatever yeah. and when i moved here they were still sending me letters because they probably wanted to keep me as a taxpayer there and i was like well i'm, I'm moved i'm not i'm not in your jurisdiction anymore right. and i right. don't have any income there and 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 like And the authorities, like in, let's say, hygiene, gastro, um, fire department, all this, they are very, they're very kind of active, let's say. Yeah. Whereas here, I feel there is there's a bigger kind of gray zone and negligence in some way that we're, I think, I have a feeling that people just think this will just take care of itself somehow. I think there's a lot of that. Yeah. And the same feeling. And we will just allow the the market. Okay, let's take a, a, an example. Like you, if if the, if a, if a restaurant causes a, a salmonella in Iceland, that that restaurant would be closed by the authorities. They will come and seal the door. Even you know, like there will be yeah. some, and that will be in the news, and that will be all over somehow. It will be the big thing. Maybe it's because there's nothing interesting happening there. Yeah. But here, I have a feeling, and I know, I know places here. I know one place here, a horrible place that I would never go to, that has had massive issues with uh, rodents in its kitchen. Oh my goodness! And 
that guy that owns that place is still in the news, he's still in, in media, he's still on social media and everything. Yep. And and I have a feeling that, you know, like that's like, okay, yeah, well, the customer will just have to figure this out themselves. Right. We are not Stop here. Going. Yeah. Yep. Do, do, you, do you get this feeling? Man, I did not know. So I'm still afraid of the hygiene department. Mm. And they can, if they if someone turns in a complaint about a restaurant, mm. for example, salmon, like if there's a salmonella complaint, I, I believe they are shut down. Mm-hmm. I don't know of any way now where Around you could it. stop that uh-huh. from happening. And that's good. Um, we have had, uh, we had, I think like three complaints that I can think of where the hygiene department came in. All three were disgruntled employees who just wanted to cause problems for me. Uh-huh. And normally I get along great with everybody, but that there were... Yeah, and with three all these years, yeah. I mean, 20-something yeah. yeah, years. Not bad, yeah, not bad. And so the hygiene came in, and they, were, they, they did a serious inspection of everything. And even if they didn't find that particular thing that was complained about, they make a point to find other things, and then mm-hmm. they make a point to, they say, all right, you've got 14 days, and we're going to come back in 14 days. This all must be fixed. Mm-hmm. And I take that very seriously. The other restaurant guys that I know take it very seriously. Maybe we would not have in the 90s, although I don't remember that happening mm-hmm. in the 90s. Maybe it's different also being yeah. a foreigner versus a local. Yeah, I, I got that a lot. Once I started speaking Czech, it helps. Yeah. It helps a lot, especially, oh. um, you know, communicating with people in their own language, in their own country, really um, drops that barrier. Mm. I don't know if it drops it 100, but it lowers it quite a bit. Mm. And what has been the biggest change that you have witnessed here in those, what, what is this, 20, 29 years now, right? No. Yeah. 29 30. years. 30. 30 years next year. Yeah. That's right. No, because it was 92, so it would be, be 31 years. 31 years. 31 years this year. What's um, the biggest change that you witnessed here? Man, there have been so many changes. Yeah. You know, you described that gray, um, you know, Eastern Bloc kind of American notion that we have of things, but... It literally was like that. Mm. You, know, you walked in and there was a layer of grit on all these beautiful, but maybe not the castle. Mm. There was a layer of grit on all the buildings. You know, there was there were no lights on the tin church. There were, um, you know, it's like this poetic kind of uh, place with coal burning homes. Mm. So there was there was the gray and there was the mist, and the mist was from the coal. You know, this pollution kind of hanging over. And, and now you walk through and you see this beautiful, lit up, well-painted, well-preserved, you know, renovated city. Mm. Uh, I mean, that's got to be the most striking thing. You know, uh, obviously we could talk politics. We can talk about the, the attitude of the employee. You know, before we had staff who, if, if you didn't hire young staff, there, there were staff who were raised with the notion that, oh, if I am at work, I am working. Mm-hmm. Meaning they don't have to do anything. They just have to show up. Uh-huh. Right? And there was this kind of, I don't know if this kind of socialist mentality of I am at work, therefore that's enough. And so there was, the, there was no impetus to move up a level. There was no impetus to do a good job. There was no impetus to um, be proud of what you had done. You're there. You just get the stuff done you have to do. Mm. And then you get to go home. Mm-hmm. Right? And there was that attitude for many, many years from people. So we had to hire young and now I don't get that at all. I think you've got a young, go-getter, um, you know, well-educated workforce here. Mm. And there might be some added, some some issues with some of the younger generations that maybe I don't want to mention. Yeah. Yeah, you know, or maybe they're talking. They want to talk about their pay before they can talk about what they can offer you. Yeah. But but then when when people are engaged, they're 
They're very productive mm-hmm. and very talented. I've, what I felt like in, in, in this time that I've been here, what the biggest change that I've noticed, because you know, like this, what you say about kind of the visible, visible um, difference of Prague was kind of all there when I came, and it's it's a beautiful city, and I I've seen it also because I've been a lot in Bucharest and in Budapest. Mm. They have a lot of beautiful buildings, but they haven't gone through all this renovation. So so you you see those buildings, but you don't see them for what they could be. Right. Know, they, they they and. Um, which is interesting, but what I have noticed for me, like the most striking difference, is the kind of the appearance of a middle class somehow, which I I uh, felt that there wasn't really a big middle class here when I came, and and I remember I lived in 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 Minorati where it was kind of the expat area of of the city, sure, and just walking down the streets there and kind of just looking at the cars. If I walk the same streets and I look at the cars now versus the cars that were there ten years ago. There's a huge difference. I mean, it's obviously people have more and they want more, but yep. that also means that um, it's more expensive for yeah for everyone. You know, yep. like the, it p- kind of pushed both the quality and the price up. And I, I see now, I am often surprised how can people afford to live here like a proper life. Yeah, I'm not sure how healthy it is. Mm-hmm. You know, if you looked at 20 years ago versus now, and you look at the average uh, household debt. Mm. 20 years ago mm. versus now, mm. um, it was lower. And not because everyone was really great at saving, but because there were not a lot of financial options yeah. for easy lo- for easy low-interest loans or mortgages even. Mortgages were relatively new, credit cards. Mm. And now all of these things are super widely available, super well-promoted, easily uh, you know, easy to sign up for. And so people see, thanks to also a very um, you know, robust marketing industry. They see all the things that they need in their life. Yeah. And uh, and they and they want them now. So I would say the household debt has gone up. I don't have the st- statistics right now. Mm-hmm. We could go to the statistics mm-hmm. office and find out, but I would bet the average household debt is five times more yeah. than it was 20 years ago. Oh, and it's it's definitely, I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's changing. And I guess somehow we all, all of Europe and all of... of we're all kind of somehow sailing into the same mold of, in some way, American consumerism. Yeah, you can say, and 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 it's it's interesting because at the same time as as and I see that being Scandinavian, you know, we've had it very good for very long, but we don't see it like that. You know, like if you if you would look at the statistics and the data about you know income quality of life life expectancy and all these things that are that the scandinavian nation score extremely high and all these happiness indexes and then you look at um what people are actually talking about you would think no these people are not living in the same country yeah because they they are unhappy they're unhappy about this they feel Mm -hmm. that their system is bad and blah 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 and and so and I often think about like, where is this gonna go somehow? And then, and then I look at the U.S. Oh no! <laughs> and I think, and I think to myself, like, well, whatever is happening there, I, I, I just somehow don't see it working out on the long run. Right. Something has to change. I don't know exactly what. If you need to split up the country, or if you need some to reshuffle the card somehow, there is a new New Deal or whatever. The new New Deal. Yeah. yeah. What what are you 2024. like? 2024. So you moved away. Ninety 
won to yep. France. Mm-hmm. And you had never lived in the States since then. No, just visit. And I've been saying ever since then, America is the number one country in the world yeah. to, to visit. Yeah. But I don't want to, I don't, I don't need to live there. I still love it. You know, I've, I've still love America. I've still got my American passport. I've not become a Czech mm. uh, citizen, although I've, you know, I've considered it. I think I'm just going to stay with uh, being an American who lives here. Mm. Um, but, but yeah, that was, uh, there have been a lot of changes in the States since I moved away. And how does it look from the distance? I mean, how is it to observe this from the distance? So after this many years, I'm able. I think I'm able to kind of view America a little more objectively than mm. before. You know, I don't have all the emotional attachment, or you know, looking for reasons to not like it, or looking for more reasons to like but it. I'm I, just kind I, of I, relaxed about the whole thing, and yeah. I love the things that are great. And then I, I can see a little more clearly, maybe, at least certainly more clearly than I could before, uh, some of the things that it could that I could work on. And that second list is getting longer and longer. So. Uh, you know what happened to the you know this well I don't know I, I, I could go on for a long time yeah we about, have time we have time <laughs> okay so the political divide is a little discouraging right now mm. I mean you have people uh, you have families breaking up friendships breaking up you know we're reading about it not only in the media there's not I, I feel like there was always a big disconnect between the media and what's really happening mm. and now I find that that disconnect in this regard is not as big as I would like it to be. We're reading uh-huh. about it and we're seeing it in the neighborhood. You see, you can see it in a supermarket. You can see it in, um, I think, in, in daily life. When I go back for a visit, I will see it. You'll see people get angry as soon as they find out that someone believes something different than them politically. Mm. And, and that didn't happen before. It used to spark conversations. Maybe, maybe those conversations would get heated, but not anger and resentment mm. toward someone who didn't agree with you politically. As if... Um, as if there's truly a right and wrong mm. and people are ready to fight for it as opposed to two different ways to look at something. Mm. And that was the way it was when I lived there. Mm. So I don't know if that's too general for you or No, no, but it's but it's it's an interesting thing because I mean I think the world is kind of watching this, you know, like we and I I don't know, I don't feel that this divide is anywhere as great in the U.S., right. you know what I mean, and uh, and it's almost I I often think about like is who benefits from this, you know who the because there's there's there must be some forces that are fueling this, right? And because there there somehow must be a better business of keeping people at each other's throat than to keep them right. together. Sell, sell, sell. Yeah. So what are they selling? Well, all these media companies, they're selling mm. social, it could be social media, it could mm. be, it could be, uh, you know, newspapers and magazines. It's keeping people engaged. And the mm. angrier they are, the more engaged they are, and they'll keep buying, and they'll keep uh, buying more to read more, to solidify even more mm. these beliefs. ideas and beliefs wow. that they already have. So I would say that's part of it. And I don't mean, you know, I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't think there's this, you know, you know, evil overlord trying to divide the nation. It just happens to be that when it's divided, various companies are making more money. Mm. So it's not in their interest to, to uh, do anything to level the playing field. Uh, no, and I think, talking about conspiracy theories, I think like um, what what we often, the let's say we the public, we often tend to somehow hold those who are in power and are, and both political power and financial power, we ho- hold 
of or we think of them as some sort of superhumans that right. that don't are, they're not greedy or they will think of the greater good. And I'm like, no, they're rich and in politics because they were able to be greedy and think of themselves. Right. Yeah. And and I take myself as an example, and I know I probably I probably piss someone off. But when the war started in Ukraine, I invested in oil immediately uh-huh. because I knew okay that there's going to be an increase in oil. Right. And I made money off this investment. It was not a huge investment, but if I was a billionaire, and right. I would have done this, and then I would I want this war to end. Right. Versus me making billions off this war. Well, See, how many people can imagine that yeah. position? Even. Yeah, right. and that's the thing. And I think, like, I always find it so interesting when we, when we choose to think that someone who is rich and has influence has somehow even a higher moral standard than me. Right. Why? <laughs> no, they, that's the, the other way around. It's been yeah. turned on its head. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. uh, so it's it's uh, so I, I agree with what you're saying. I, I I don't think that there is someone sitting on top of this orchestrating a divide. You know that, that, but I think there there are forces that, or let's say behaviors and patterns that form when circumstances allow, where someone finds a way to milk something. Right. The guy that owns this this. Um, uh, the four or five floor discotheque by Charles Bridge. Sure, Carlo Villasni. Yeah. So a friend of mine, she was working there. He obviously had to close it down in COVID, but he was clever. He opened a COVID test center at the ground floor. I see. He's never made more money. No kidding. Of that place than from there. He had two employees. He used 50 square meters. He probably got the rent of course, decreased, and yep. he got a state support and blah blah, and then he sold COVID test for hundred bucks a head. There was a queue outside the place twenty four seven for COVID tests. Why would this guy, if he right. had the ear of anyone on the on the COVID team, he would say, no, no, let's let's yeah, keep yeah. the restrictions. Few more, few yeah. more Let's just mm. few more months. I'm gonna buy mm. a new house. Yeah, and and these are this is how it works. But we we, yeah. we we just don't want to believe it. We don't yep. want to see it for what it is. And we keep thinking. And for me, so I actually think, co- talking conspiracies, yep. the real conspiracy theorist is the one who actually thinks that power structures, organizations, and people that have constantly lied, yeah. cheated, and paid penalties for it, the real conspiracy is to believe that these people are actually good. That, right. that, that, because yeah. that's such an outrageous belief with no indicators agreeing yeah. with that yeah. particular thought process. Yes. Right. So 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 the same person will make fun of me if I would believe in God and say that that's impossible. But that person will believe in a politician that has been proven to lie and right. cheat right. millions of times. And uh, like if we take the wars, take Iraq. I mean, like everybody knows it was they lied. They didn't have any weapons yeah. of mass destruction. Right. So why should they be Despite telling us... Despite the proof yeah, the from, the, from the reliable source. Exactly. Why should we believe them on Ukraine? Why? Why shouldn't we be doubtful at least about it? Like, why? What's the motive for that war? Who's benefiting? Blah, blah, yep. blah. So it's, yeah. it's an interesting thing. And I, I I don't know. Yeah, we kind of went off. But this right. divide is growing. Agreed. Agreed. And, um, 
And, and, it's, and, and it's people, hard to discern the truth. Yeah. It's harder and harder to discern the truth. You need an even more critical eye now than before. Because yeah. if you just stick with particular news sources, yeah. they will keep feeding this idea that yeah. these, these half-truths, or however we want to describe yeah. them, uh, and keep confirming these notions. Whereas if we look into alternative sources of news, and I don't mean you know, the fake news mm-hmm. on social mm-hmm. media, mm-hmm. Um, but I just mean getting away, you know, in America, we've got, you know, CNN and Fox. And anyone who just keeps watching Fox, well, they're going to become brainwashed yeah, in, in, and uh, in the ways CNN, of the right. Re- yeah. Same thing on the left. And so oh. I'm not picking one over the other. I'm saying, uh, you know, take a look at both and then find something else that's a little more investigative mm-hmm. and a little more, uh, a little bit more objective. You know, I, would, I would take, for example, we would view the BBC as mm-hmm. a little more objective than either mm-hmm. of these two that I just mentioned. Yeah, And I think also what I, what I feel is that and that's maybe part of this kind of movement of, you know, it's okay to be this, it's okay to be lazy, it's okay to be this, blah, blah, blah. It's also apparently now okay to not think for yourself. Right. And 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 I, I think that is the, like, maybe what we're seeing now is that there was always an owner of the truth. It used to be the king and the church. They owned the truth because the truth was the, the word of the, the Lord, you yep. know, whatever. And, the, and who could write and read? They worked for the church. Right. So that the, the, you had this consolidated power between politics and religion. And, and now we have some sort of a consolidated, or we had probably more than we know, a consolidated power of media and politics. So the media would kind of report whatever the politics fed right. them. Yep. So that we we lived in a reality where we were we thought everything was fine, everything yep. was true. Yeah, they were supposed to be the objective observer. Yeah, and but now maybe because of social media and all these other methods of distributing reality, you know, videos and and podcasts and yep. all all these, we're kind of seeing cracks in this picture yep. somehow. So maybe actually. We have always been lied to even more, or you know, finding the truth. And we were less aware. Yeah, because there was just there was just this one TV screen, right. and 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 not, nothing else, and and uh, and it's it's really the trusted anchorman. Yeah, you know, who what he said about what happened in some it's place th- that is the truth, yeah. and you don't question him. He's got his entire reputation on the line. And I think it's hard for people to get away from this because it's scary. It it's. It's much more scary for me to have to think about how am I going to keep my family, which is me, my girlfriend, and a dog, right. how am I going to keep us safe? How am I going to provide? How am I going to take care of our health, whatever, if there is no one telling me how to do it? Yeah. That means that I need to do it myself. Yeah. I need to Wim Hof my way through it, you know? you got to Wim Hof your way through it. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and I think this is what is making people right. a little bit freak, freaking out, right? right. Because... You know, okay, it might not be true. And then there are some people that just, I just want it to be true. I, I need right. something to cling on to. Yeah, I need some compartment where yeah. I feel comfortable. And yeah. the boundaries of that keep getting pushed farther yeah. and farther away. Uh, but more where, chaos. But where, of chaos. But where do you think, like, uh, I mean, I, I guess, yeah. So you're born in 1969, right? Yeah. So you grow up in, like, a, a good, interesting time where kind of America is... Yeah, booming in a way, like when you're born. Yeah, I think we were doing okay. We had the you know Jimmy the Jimmy Carter years where yeah. uh, you know there was a bit of a recession, not a depression, and then and 
then uh, I think in the 80s, we took off again. And, the, uh, and the, those values, I mean, like, as you said earlier, you said, yeah, I was going to go and open a restaurant. You, you wanted something. You wanted to create something. Right. Has this changed? Do you, do you feel like, I don't know, when you go back to the visit the U.S. or when you, like, do you think the value set of the U.S. has moved somehow? Or is it moving? Yeah. Uh, uh, so I, the, the best I can do on that one is I can get a feel when I go back there. So I'm reading about it here as, as much as I can. And then I'm, I go back and I try and get a feel on what's happening with the actual you know, people and multi, on, a, on a multi-generational level. Mm. And uh, so with me, we were not, uh, my upbringing there, when you picked a career, when you were in school and they would talk about the different careers, entrepreneur was not there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it was still the upbringing where you go to a firm, you get your job, you're loyal to that firm. Mm, get a watch after 25 years. Yes, yeah. and a little st- stipend or whatever for the yeah. rest of your. And so that was the way uh, we were definitely raised. I was definitely not in fitting into that particular group as it, uh, with an entrepreneurial entrepreneurial mentality from the beginning. Mm. I never, I never clicked at any of those. I never circled any of those professions. And now. Uh, as far as entrepreneurship goes, I think there are more entrepreneurs than ever. And mm-hmm. entrepreneur means I'm started my own Instagram site, yeah. <laughs> right? Rather than going through the seed capital and da da da. And I'm not. I don't mean to downplay it too much, but I'm saying it is much more widely accepted to become an entrepreneur to co- go into business for yourself. It's never been easier than in the history of the world. Mm. And um, and I would say, may, you know, if anything, it c- could be too easy. Mm. Right, because you don't have to go through that process. You don't have to write that business plan that fails, which basically mm. has you rethink your entire operation before you even open the doors. Mm. And that is what I had to do in order to get that first place going. Mm. And these other, we opened a bunch of restaurants after that, and none of them needed that particular thought process. Mm. But we did it anyway because we ended up using that business plan as a bible. And w- whenever we would kind of go off piste and and have questions we would go back to the business mm-hmm. plan so well you know we were supposed to be focusing more on this particular segment and we really ignored the lunches in exchange for the dinners because the dinners are the higher ticket item or wh- or whatever sorry mm-hmm. i digress mm-hmm. um, but my point there is that in my upbringing it was a wholly different approach to work and and uh, your profession mm-hmm. than it is now and so i don't exactly identify with how people are viewing the workplace you know how does this affect the the employee Mm-hmm. that is going to go get a job at Procter & Gamble in an mm-hmm. old-school way. You know, is mm-hmm. Procter & Gamble keeping them for 20 years still? You know, do you, can you still join your law firm, become partner, and stay there for 20 years? Or has all of that changed and become more uh, not nebulous, I guess more ephemeral mm-hmm. is what I'm trying to say. Like, mm-hmm. is everything now gone from the 20-year plan down to the two-year plan? Yeah, and instant success also. We, exactly. We, people want, don't have patience now. And and it's interesting because, as you said, we've never had a. It's never been easier. Anything, everything is easier now than it was ten years ago, twenty years ago. And in ten years from now, it will probably be easier than today. You know what I mean? Right. That's just exactly. A, but but at the same time, and we have all these tools that were been given to us that could increase efficiency and uh, all that. But we have never struggled as much. You know, like if we look at disease mental disease um and obesity i mean like anxiety yeah and 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 it's like i don't know it's almost as we built a world that is too complex for this animal that we are Uh, yeah you know what i mean sure and uh and i and i feel like maybe it's just because the 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 u.s has the biggest window through the world you know right 
it's it's the epicenter of all culture and pop and media and stuff like that and and you know we i i always knew who was the president of the u.s since i was like five got you I, sure i didn't know necessarily yep. the 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 chancellor of, of germany you yep. know sure so so maybe it's just that we see that more but i i have a, i i don't know i just have a feeling that people are eating shit and they're anxious and they're triggered and they're angry but they have everything at their disposal somehow. Yeah, yeah, I don't. Uh, I agree with that uh, so much. You know, if we look at the media, look at any of these outlets that we mentioned before, mm. or we can take these newspapers. You know, the big we've got New York Times, we've got Wall Street Journal. If we're talking mm. about America, and you can't read a page of those without getting um, triggered, mm. right? So it's triggering people in this um, unhealthy way. Mm. Right? To get back to what you're saying too about the health, not not just physical, not just the mental health, but also the physical health. Mm. Um, and here we're not talking about media outlets. We're talking about <clears throat> marketing outlets. We're talking about promoting and making money off unhealthy products mm. and making people feel like those are normal products, yeah. making them feel like, oh, this is what you can include into your daily life. As opposed to, like you were saying, the, the comfort food. Mm. Having once a week, I don't think any, uh, anybody, anybody's physiology is going to notice that yeah. unless they've got a serious problem. Um, but to think that that kind of food or that kind of beverage is is normal mm. is going to lead us to um, a, a much unhealthier place it's interesting because it kind of as you say we normalized a lot of things that are not natural to us in in lifestyle and food and stuff like that and uh, and i there is this football player now in in england erling brot holland he's a norwegian guy okay. tall long blonde hair and he's like a freak of nature you know he can score he scored already 50 goals this season which has not been done since 1931 or something oh like no that. kidding and there are still a yeah. lot of games to go you yeah. know so he's gonna break that record by mm. far now <clears throat> i read his lifestyle and 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 um, and uh, nutrition kind of routine and <laughs> so he drinks raw milk i see and he eats meat and fish yeah. and some vegetables and fruit he takes sunlight every day to at least two minutes into his eyes and oh, nice. he uses his blue light filters in the evening before he goes sure. to bed all the latest science yeah. yeah and they call him an extremist oh no kidding yeah Man, and was... like and then I'm, and and like and i was thinking okay so i eat a lot of meat and i exercise and i believe that people should be responsible for their own health their own well-being and yes we need to help take care of those who can't right but I don't believe that it's 90% of the nation that can't. I think that's the other way around. Yes. And uh, so, but I am now probably on all standards, on the American spectrum at least, and probably in a lot of other countries as well, I'm a, I'm a extreme right. Wow. Like, yeah. do you know the, the what way, I mean? The way you eat paints you politically yeah. now. Yeah. That's and, crazy. And, and that yeah. I want to exercise or yeah. that I want to use a blue light filter. Yeah. So we have normalized. Yeah, who are you to do that? Yeah. Are you making? Do you want to make these other people feel bad? Bad about for not exercising and not wearing the blue light? Yeah. How dare I'm you? Insulting them, and it's 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 such a it's such an interesting thing that like, and I feel that this happened just in five years, yeah. ten years, or yeah. something that we kind of we made most of the world a victim, or most yeah. people are become victims, and the ones that are actually want to just be responsible for themselves and kind of 
live their life in the best possible way, they are extremists. Yeah. The ones taking personal responsibility yeah. and making their own decisions and not going with uh, herd mentality yeah. in, in various ways, but actually carving their own path based on what they think and feel themselves. Yeah, it's, a, it's such, a, such a fascinating thing. Yeah. But at the same time, we have Wim Hof, for example. Something like that yep. grows. Um, never in history have more people been running marathons. Take that oh, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Sure. And that's a good sign. Yeah. So, so, so I feel that. Okay. Yeah. There is there is this kind of growth of 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 victimhood, right, <laughs> or whatever. But on the other side, there is also somehow there is an industry that is kind of growing of people that actually want to kind of. Go back to the roots. Be, right. I want to be human. I want to mm. feel like a human. You know, yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to eat shit that that colors right. my intestines or something like that. Man, exactly. And and maybe they're not finding the rewards that you're supposed to get by living in comfort all the time. And you know, no, but then yourself so, feel good no, about everything. No, but no, but then some some other industry just takes over. When when the food industry has poisoned you, then the pharma industry comes in and says, "Well, it's not the food." Mm. It's the yeah. environment that you live in. You need to take this pill. Take you know? this pill. That'll that'll fix all your problems. Yeah. If that doesn't work, I have another one for you. Yeah. Do you do you take any prescribed medicine? No. I just, I just started taking some allergy pills because this is my season. Yeah, but you just see that's a, little, a temporary <clears throat> thing. Yeah, I take it for about six or seven weeks per year. Otherwise, no prescriptions. I'll take some supplements now. Mm. Um, I'm trying to stay on top of the science. You know, middle uh, middle aged life, uh, midlife warrior. Midlife crisis midlife warrior. Midlife crisis warrior. Yeah. Uh, in the midlife, you know, I'm starting to take some supplements, looking at what it is that we need to, uh, we, we should be taking to keep staying at the top of our game and mm. as healthy as possible. But no prescriptions. What about you? No, I don't. But I, I, I just have a feeling that it's it's a dying breed to be like, I, I just turned 50, you're 54. Yeah. There are so many people that I know that are taking all sorts of prescriptions like, and and I, I just don't get... For me, it's just so foreign somehow, you know? Yeah. I mean, first of all, my girlfriend would kill me if I would take any. Yeah. I, I'm oh, really? So she's a purist yeah, in that I'm, regard. Uh, yeah, okay. she's an extremist. Okay, Extra oh, Yeah, how dare extreme, she? Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and I, I... So I'm barely allowed to take a headache pill, even if I have a hangover, you Man. know? Like, yeah. so... So she, she makes me suffer. And uh, no, it's just... I don't know. And then when you tell someone this, like when, when you talk about, yeah, I'm... You know, you fifty four. You go yeah. barefoot to the woods and you walk in the snow, and and people can laugh about that all they want, but there is no reason why they can't. No, exactly. This is the kind of thing like you're talking about the Wim Hof method. That's another reason that it is it is rising. Uh, the popularity is growing, uh, is because it is for anyone. Everyone can go mm. for that walk. You don't yeah. have to go to the top of Kilimanjaro. Yeah. Right? You don't have to go stay in the ice bath for an hour. You can do these things according to your own. It's kind of a thing where it's not you and me. We will not compete against yeah, each other. It's yeah, about it's you, you becoming yourself. You, the best yeah. you possible. Exactly. Uh, you know, Wim says, no ego, we go. You know, mm -hmm. he has these clever phrases. Mm -hmm. And so that one kind of sticks with you. You know, it's not, we're not going to go in there and battle it out together, uh, compete against each other. So that does, so you can apply that to everybody, just like you said. Also the walk in the forest, um, in the snow, that's for everybody. Yeah. Um, we're not trying to... Um, ex exclude anyone. Everyone has the right to, to take this responsibility mm. of their life. But I feel with with these things also, like I I think um, f to a person who hasn't done anything like this, it it might seem like a 
an obstacle that is too big somehow. And like, I remember my 400 meter run. Then if someone would have told me that I would be running a marathon, I don't know, 10, 15 years later, I would yeah. have said, no, there's right. no way. But right. I gradually got there and I didn't expect to go there within a week. And I think, I think that's a mindset that, that we're kind of losing a little bit because we kind of want this instant gratification from everything that we do instead of saying, yep. okay, I'm just going to put in the work and it's going to come, mm. stuff is going to come later, you know? Yep. And, uh, and I like, and, 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 and I think, I think what you've just said now is a, is a key thing in that is that you're actually, your benchmark is yourself, yeah. your old self or your previous self. It's exactly. not, you don't need to go into. I, I'm not going to run the Prime Marathon thinking that I'm competing with anyone. I'm just competing with myself. Right. There are five or ten or fifteen thousand other people there, but I don't give a shit about what they're doing. I'm right. there. I'm there racing against myself. Right. And that's the healthy attitude. That's mm. the growth mentality. Mm. That's where you are ready to become a better self, a better yeah. person than you were the day before. Mm. That, that you're always going to end with a win. Yeah. Right. You compare exactly. against five thousand other people. There's always going to be someone yeah, who's faster. Better. Yeah. 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 And I don't, and I don't care. People clap for me equally much when I come in their number four thousand seven hundred as I do long, number five hundred. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're sure. just gonna be clapping. You know, I'm not yeah. one of those Kenyans who is there in two hours. Oh man. But yeah. Okay, no, Max. So, what are, what are you gonna do for the rest of the day? So I've got a uh, exciting list of tasks coming up. Yeah. So I will be mowing the lawn in about half an hour, and then I'm gonna go to the pool. Okay. Get the get the um, workout in. Hopefully, there won't be too many people there. It's a beautiful day, and it's how a holiday. How much do you swim, then? How, how far will you swim? So, I would say the average training is about an hour, mm -hmm. and it's about three kilometers. Okay. So, it depends on what we're focusing on at the time. We're generally doing a lot of uh, kind of mid-distance freestyle stuff. Mm -hmm. So, it could be like 2,700 2, meters, maybe 3,400 meters, depending on what we do. And I'll meet with a couple other people on the team, and we'll always have a good time. And okay. when it's a beautiful day like today, you, you enjoy it even more. We need, I need to, we should sign up for like a team Ironman. You do the swimming. That's a deal. Yeah, I'll do the, I'll do the bike. Yeah. And then we split the run. Uh, it's, it's a great, it's a great idea. Count me in, first of all, for that. Yeah. Second of all, for the swimming, do you know the book Total Immersion? No. So there's a book called Total Immersion that was basically written for people who wanted to swim well, who did not grow up swimming okay. competitively like uh -huh. I did. And it was yeah. always true that you'll never, anyone who didn't grow up swimming competitively will never be able to swim like someone who did. And there was one book that changed that. Uh -huh. And that was this book called Total Immersion. This guy, I, f I forget his name right now, but he helps you with your approach to the water, how you want to feel in the water. Then there's some stroke description as well. But it can turn a kind of triathlete swimmer who's you know just uh -huh. trying to get through that leg into someone who is a, you know, a, um, a powerful swimmer. I need, to, I need to check that because you know, and also with the, the, the swimming and the triathlons is that they shit, people shit themselves a lot in the start of the swim. No kidding. So you don't want to be the slowest. No, I then didn't know that. No, they, they, they're, like, they're having diarrhea all the fucking time. Oh, there. my goodness. And uh, I, I read this uh, biography of a girl who was a three-time world champion in, in, in Ironman, female Ironman. And, and she was saying, that, you know, one of the re main reasons why you want to be fast into the water yeah. and, and in the front is that yeah. otherwise you're swimming. No, someone else's no, shit, no. So. I never heard that. That's no. terrible. Yeah, it's horrible. You, you've got to get this book. And if you need any help, you let yeah. me know. Yeah. Okay. We'll go to the pool together. Let's wave. Guys, okay. thanks for watching. If you're watching and thanks. guys that are listening, check it out on YouTube as well. Um, 
Max, Hello. thanks for coming. Thank you for Great having to me. Have you. Uh, I think I will have to bring you back. And Max Steakhouse, guys, uh, just a little dropping that here at the final. A little plug. Yeah, little you. plug. It's, a gr- it's actually a great place and very, very reasonably priced. Good steaks, good price. Yep. Yep. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right. Take care. Bye.